You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. I did a little research this week on how much the average American household spends on clothing. Do you want to guess how much? (laughs) And the the hard thing about doing statistical research like this is it's very imprecise. I had numbers all over the place, but the general consensus is that households spend between $1,500 and $2,000 per year on clothing. That breaks down to about $120 to $160 per month, give or take. Now, there are a couple of other things that these websites were very quick to add. One was that Americans spend more on clothing than just about every other country in the world. Not a surprise. The other thing that didn't surprise me at all is that women spend more than men on their clothing. One website even estimated that a woman will spend between $100,000 and $125,000 on clothes in her lifetime. And I read that and thought, that can't be right. But I, I'm not a woman, so maybe it is true. Uh, I hope we're not doing that. <laughs> the point is, we invest a lot of time on our physical clothes. And in, in, in America, we have a lot of them. We have a lot of clothes. We have clothes for every outfit and then five or six backups. But how much do we invest in our spiritual clothing? It's understandable that we don't think about spiritual clothing a lot because it's not like we can see it very much. But our spiritual clothing is actually far more important than our physical clothing. Yes, our physical clothing is a necessity. We thank God for it. But if it's a necessity, then how much more important and necessary is our spiritual clothing? Colossians 3 uses this metaphor of spiritual clothing to to describe spiritual growth. So the the title of today's sermon is Clothed with Christlikeness. If you look down at verse 8 of Colossians 3, there's a command to put off, and then Paul lists out a number of things. That verb put off was also used to describe the process of changing, of taking off clothes. And Paul mentions things like putting off sexual immorality, putting off anger and angry speech, putting off lying, things that that are not becoming to Christians we put off. And then in verses 10, 9, 10, and 11, we're called to renew our minds, to make our minds new. And we do that by, by sanctifying it in the Word of God, by cleansing our minds through the reading of Scripture. And if you're going to use a clothes-changing analogy, the renewing process would be like freshening up or taking a shower. If you uh, come in from working out in the yard and you're sweaty and stinky and you don't shower but you just put on nice clothes, no one wants to sit next to you. That's, That's an essential part of the process. And here now in verse 12, Going all the way through verse 17, we're called to put on. So we've laid aside certain things, we've cleansed our minds, we're changing our minds by studying the word of God to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now we're putting on certain things. And this is the process of spiritual change, is it not? We've talked about this several times. The process of spiritual change is put off, renew, and put on. And if we don't do each of these steps, we're going to end up failing in our Christian life. Maybe, maybe you've had an experience with that where you've thought, oh, why can't I kick this habit? Or why can't I develop this virtue? 
Perhaps it's not, it's because you're not walking through these steps. But spiritual growth, as we also said, is not just up to our own efforts, right? Praise God that that spiritual growth is an evidence of grace. It's grace-filled. God sends us his spirit that changes us and transforms us. So we're calling it grace-driven effort, right? We, we have to work. We are to live out our faith. We are to put on the right clothing. But our little teaspoon of effort is supported by a dump truck of God's grace. That's the analogy we've used. And this process takes time. If you're thinking, well, I haven't changed much since last week. Well, Unfortunately, spiritual growth takes time. I I wish that we would all, at the end of the sermon, walk out, get a a digital download in our brains and say, sweet, I've got whatever he talked about, got it down for the rest of the week. But we don't work like that. Spiritual growth takes place over time. And this entire process of change really is based on who you worship. The book of Colossians has showed us that our hearts are really the center of everything, and at the center of our hearts ought to be Jesus Christ. He is preeminent over all the universe, Colossians 1. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we've referred to him as the treasure of our hearts, the thing that we love the most above everything else, what we prioritize and live for. Your treasure is what you live for and what you would die for. There are some things in my life that I say, you know what? That's really important to me, but I wouldn't die for it. There are other things like the Lord Jesus that is so important. He's so important that, yes, we live for him. And there are brothers and sisters all over the world today that are dying for him. He's worth it. If we treasure Christ the way that this passage calls us to, then we will add to our faith certain things. Christians who treasure Christ will put on Christ-like character. Because if we're treasuring Christ, everything about us should look like Christ. We should live like Christ. That's the goal of sanctification. Spiritual growth doesn't just take place as we lay aside the wrong things. It also takes place as we pursue the right things. And so I would encourage you to target specific areas of your heart, of your life, that are not conformed to Christ, that you're deficient in. Make them objects of prayer. Make them spiritual goals so that the the word of God and the spirit of God can begin to transform you. If you're struggling with your tongue, it's not simply enough to lay aside those evil forms of speech. Start practicing grace-filled speech and kindness and truth-telling. And we do that by relying on the word of God. Colossians 3.12 gives us five qualities to dress ourselves in. And that's really where the bulk of our message today will be on, Colossians 3.12. Because this passage shows us how to dress ourselves with Christ-likeness. And before we get to these specific articles of clothing, Paul begins by understanding, by helping us to remember why we add these things to our Christian life. He begins not with commands, but with our identity. This passage grounds our character and our pursuit of Christ's likeness in who we are. So let's look at this. At the beginning of verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Christians who treasure Christ will put on Christ-like character. And point number one, Christ-like character is a natural outflow of, 
of our Christian identity. The first word of the verse is the word therefore, which draws on the immediate context of verses 9 and 10. And verses 9 through 10 show us that that at salvation, we have put off the old man. We're no longer belonging to him anymore. We've put on the new humanity. We've put on Christ. We belong to him now. If you go back to Colossians 1, 12 through 14, Paul describes this as being transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God's dear son. We've switched sides. We've changed allegiances We've changed treasures. And so as new people, as people of the new humanity in Christ, we are to live out that faith. How do we do that? Well, we have to remember who we are. Who are we? Verse 12 tells us that we are chosen by God or elect of God. We are holy and we are beloved. Let's take each of those one at a time. We are chosen by God or the elect of God. And the Bible is very clear It teaches that God is sovereign when it comes to salvation. Those who are saved are his chosen ones. And and what we naturally do as human beings, because that doesn't make sense to us, how could God choose to, uh, to some for salvation and yet still give us a free will? And by the way, no one solved that mystery yet. We run to that discussion. We don't get it. It doesn't make sense to us. But you know what? Scripture's emphasis is on when it comes to election. Every time the word elect is used in the New Testament, I looked it up this week, it is used to encourage existing believers that they are secure in Christ. We are so secure in Jesus that just as he chose us for salvation, he will continue to support us for sanctification. Romans 8, 28 through 30 talks about this. That as he predestined us, we will be conformed to the image of his son and we will be glorified. So the emphasis in scripture is on election being for our encouragement. It points to our security in Christ. He will continue to meet our needs and minister to us. And in this verse, the fact that we are God's elect also means that we are God's chosen representatives of the new humanity. You say, well, that's kind of a mouthful. Because God has saved us, we now demonstrate to the world around us what salvation looks like in flesh and blood. Because we claim that Jesus has changed me. He saved me. I'm not part of the old way of living anymore. I'm part of Christ now. So we are now his representatives by his grace, his ambassadors, to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. To be chosen by God means that we get to live like Christ. We are now the model for how Christ himself would live here on earth. And, and the objection to all this that I've heard from people is, well, Christians do a bad job of resembling Christ. If you can resonate with that, then that makes at least two of us. Yeah, we fail. We're weak. That's why we put on Christ-like character. The second aspect that that Paul reminds us of is that we are holy. When a person has received Jesus as Savior, their sins are forgiven. They're declared holy before God. That's what we call positional holiness. Position simply means where you are in relation to God. You are made holy. 
Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. That is practical holiness. We are holy, so we glorify God by walking in holiness, not the other way around. And it's very easy to get it wrong, right? If we think that we have to live holy to be holy, then we'll end up trying to earn favor with God by the way we live. The fact is, we are made holy at salvation, and therefore we then turn away from sin. Therefore, we love others. Therefore, we add virtue to our faith. Holiness doesn't mean that we have to to totally do away with rubbing shoulders with sinful people. Holiness means that we resist sin and walk in purity so that the world around us sees that there's a difference in us. Those who belong to Jesus will live like Jesus. A Christian pursues holiness because that's his or her new nature. In fact, if a Christian is not pursuing holiness, if they're living in sin, they don't care that they're living in sin, they're flaunting it, they have no conviction over it, the Bible actually says you need to go back and check your confession of faith. Because a believer, though they will struggle with sin, is trying to become more like Christ. Holiness. The third identity marker gives us great encouragement. We are beloved. Michael Reeves explains the significance of this. Quote, those who are found in Christ find themselves beloved like him. That is their new status, their new identity. As the father looks with pleasure and delight on this perfect son of his, so he looks with pleasure and delight on all who are in him. Once estranged from God, now we are his children Once we were under his wrath, Ephesians 2 says, now we are children of his grace. This this is a stabilizing truth. God's love for you will never change. We were talking on the way in this morning about this very matter, that we don't, God doesn't love us more on our good weeks and love us less on our bad weeks. God's love for us is not like the stock market that kind of goes up and down and, ooh, you know, this fall I've been doing really good in my spiritual walk so God loves me a little bit more. That's not how it works. We are beloved, period. And even when a believer sins, God chastens them, but he chastens them, Hebrews 12, how? In love, His chastening is not in anger throwing you around. It's because he loves you and is bringing you back to himself. We are beloved. God's love frees us from the weight of being afraid of God's displeasure on the one hand. You don't have to wonder if God's angry with you if you are a believer. He loves you. On the other hand, it frees you from the bondage of trying to earn his favor. Because I hate to break it to you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. We are sinful people. But when we are joined to Christ, we are now, as the text says, beloved. We're beloved. And if you're here today and you've never received Christ as Savior, then then this is not true of you yet. You are not beloved. You are not holy. The Word of God says that you can be saved when you repent of your sin. When you turn and acknowledge it and say, this is not who I want to be, you turn to Christ instead. And you receive him by faith. 
And everything else that we're going to say here in the next few minutes really is predicated on the fact that you are a believer in Jesus. If you're not a believer, you can kind of add good things to your life. It becomes moralistic. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But true change, true spiritual progress only comes when we know Christ as our Savior. And if that's not been true of you today, I would encourage you to make that decision. So there are three markers of our identity. Why does Paul start here? What's the importance of identity to spiritual growth? What's the connection here? Well, there are two that I want to point out briefly. First, identity grounds spiritual growth in the gospel. There's a phrase that I've read in different people. It's this, indicatives always lead to imperatives. Indicatives are the statements of fact in the Bible. Imperatives are the commands, what we do. And a lot of Christians focus on what we're supposed to do, and and it becomes untethered to who we are and what Christ has done. You see, in Paul's writing especially, the indicatives, what God has done and who we are, always comes before the commands. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 talks about this, right? If you have your Bible open, you can glance back at it. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in the faith, established. Just as you receive Jesus by faith, now walk in him. The gospel is a gospel of grace. Spiritual growth is the same way. You don't get into the spiritual race by faith and then God says, all right, take it from here. It's all of grace. It's all of his work in us. And so understanding our identity helps us to ground spiritual growth in the gospel. Second, it prevents wrong approaches to the spiritual walk, to the spiritual life. If you remember who you are, you're not going to fall into rules-based or duty-driven growth. That, well, my Christianity is just this list of things I have to accomplish. No, no, no. It's who you are. Just like someone that is a professional basketball player is going to dress like that and act like that and talk like that and play like that, that's just who they are. Christians don't walk around saying, well, a good Christian ought to do this and a good Christian ought to do that and a good Christian ought to do that, as if we're robots. Yes, we should identify things to grow in. But my point is, The spiritual life is not just doing the right things. It's living out who we are. Another wrong approach is a moralism. And this is what happens in a lot of denominations that lose the gospel. They don't teach the gospel, but they know that, that, you know, being kind to one another is a good thing and love one another, that's a good thing. So you have like this morality on one hand without Jesus. And so it becomes a lot of just kind of like, well, we're supposed to be good to one another. You can't really have a strong second great commandment without the first great commandment. You can't really love one another the way we ought if you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So our identity prevents moralism, and it also prevents hypocrisy. We don't have to pretend like we figured it out. We don't have to walk around saying, well, my spirituality is based on how people think I am or what people view of me. No, You are made holy. You are beloved, so live it out. And when you fail, we have the freedom to say, Lord, I need your help. Please forgive me. And he gives grace. And so as we get into the next few weeks about specific things to grow in, 
we have to remember that God's work in our hearts through the gospel is the foundation for all of this. The natural, expected, obvious next step for a person who belongs to Jesus is to live like Jesus, is to look like Jesus, is to think like Jesus. That really is what discipleship is, learning the ways and the lifestyle of Jesus. And that's what verses 12 through 14 encourage us in. The second main point here is this. Christ-like character is put on like spiritual clothing. And briefly, I want to remind us that this entire paragraph is written in the plural. Just as verses 5 through 11 is written to us as a community, these verses are also written in the plural. The commands are plural verbs. The pronouns are plural. Together, we treasure Christ and lay aside sins that would destroy the body. Together, we as a community put on virtues that reflect Christ and promote health and unity. That being said, a healthy church is made up of a bunch of individual healthy Christians. So that's going to be my emphasis from from this point forward. How can you, who treasure Christ individually, put on Christ-like character? Because the fact of the matter is, no one can be godly for you. If I could, I would. But you have to walk with the Lord on your own. You have to yield to the Spirit of God. You have to walk in his ways. Let's continue with the clothing metaphor. And these verses, uh, these attributes in verse 12, really give us a glimpse into the closet of Jesus, if you can use that metaphor. These are the very things that he clothes himself in, that he dresses himself in. And so if we wish to be like Jesus, we need to dress ourselves in these same things. So verse 12 really shows us each article of clothing in this wardrobe. That's the analogy I'm using. The wardrobe of Christ-like character in verse 12 begins with compassion. The word here in the New King James is tender mercies. And it's always interesting to me in Bible study when different translations have a lot of disagreement about how to translate a phrase. Sometimes it's like everybody says the same thing. Okay, nothing, you know, nothing out of the ordinary here. If you compare translations of the phrase tender mercies, there's about eight or ten different ways to translate it. It literally means heart of mercy. Uh, it's also translated compassion or compassionate hearts. And, and actually, I think the most vivid of all the translations is the King James. It reads, bowels of mercies. That's the most literal translation, bowels of mercies. The word bowels literally refer to someone's intestines, their, their, their stomach area. And so here, it, it's used figuratively to refer to something felt in the deepest part of a person. The ancients didn't have modern understanding of how each part of our bodies worked, so they kind of had to use general terms. So if you were moved with something from the deepest part of you, whether it was anger or compassion like it is in this verse, it was said to be moved out of your bowels. It's springing out of the core of who you are. And what springs out of the core of a Christ-like person is mercy. Because this is Jesus' heart for us, too. This word for mercy is not the normal word. It has the idea of a deep stirring in the soul toward another person. 
leading them to be sensitive and tender toward one another. You say, okay, that's great in in theory, but what does this type of mercy look like in action? Well, it looks like Jesus. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. From the deepest part of him, Jesus felt this, this pity and this mercy on behalf of other people. He saw their need. They were like sheep wandering around without someone to guide them and protect them and heal them and help them. And he was moved in his very heart for them. This stirring of Jesus wasn't annoyed. (laughs) He saw this huge crowd and he didn't say, man, this is gonna be inconvenient. I don't think I'm getting home for dinner tonight. He wasn't frustrated. It wasn't self-serving. I can use this crowd to become popular. What emerged from him was compassion. And this compassion moved Jesus to do something about the pitiful situation of the people, Matthew 14, 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion. And he healed their sick. And so from these two verses, Matthew 9, 36 and Matthew 14, 14, we see that compassion has really two parts. It's the stirring of the soul, the feeling at the very heart of a person. But then it moves to action. Jesus was moved and he didn't say, well, wow, I feel so bad for these people. That's too bad. And walk away. He was moved with compassion and he moved then toward them. Are you moved with compassion when you see the needs of others? Or would annoyance and impatience be a more accurate description of you? That when someone steps on your toes, whether figuratively or literally in our household, I realized after flying in the airport with flip-flops on, I should never do that with little children because they step on my toes over and over and over again. Kate kind of looked at me like, eh, your fault, buddy. When someone steps on your toes, what arises out of the deepest part of you? And I have to confess, a lot of times it's not compassion. You see, when we're moved with compassion for others, we show great kindness to them because kindness is really compassion in action. And that's actually the second, list, second quality on the list. We clothe ourselves not just with compassion, but with kindness. Kindness simply means the quality of being helpful or beneficial. Now, why do we have to be told to be kind? Why do we have to tell our little, little children, as the cubby workers will do tonight over and over again, be kind to one another? Why is that one of the first verses that infants and toddlers have to learn? Because we're naturally selfish people. We are not beneficial and useful and gracious toward others. And unfortunately, some of us haven't outgrown that. We're just not kind. Maybe we dress it up a little bit better, but we're rude, we're mean, we're self-serving, we're harsh, we're abrupt. And we're we're unlike Christ when we do that. Kindness says, I'll help someone else even if it costs me dearly. And once again, this is what Christ wore. This is an article of clothing that he put on. In fact, he summarized his entire existence on earth, his entire ministry and life as really one of kindness. Mark ten forty five. for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The fact that Jesus came out of heaven down to earth is is a massive evidence of kindness. The incarnation is 
capital K, kindness. That God would leave his lofty position and, and, and lower himself to us. Not to receive honor and glory and adoration, but, but to serve us and to meet our needs. And that's how Jesus lived, right? He walked the earth in constant ministry, crisscrossing the wilderness and the desert and the cities to, to heal people and to help people and to, to teach them about the kingdom. And, and sometimes we get the idea that Jesus was like this divine waiter that, that took people's orders and then gave them whatever they wanted. That, that's not kindness either, though, so let's clarify that. Kindness is not just giving people whatever they feel like having. It's not sacrificing yourself for the whims of others. Kindness is sacrificing yourself for the needs of others. And what was the ultimate, ultimate manifestation of that kindness, as this verse says? Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate act of kindness was Jesus being, allowing the created beings that he put together to nail him to the cross, shedding his blood to offer us forgiveness that was free. You want to talk about kindness? That is kind. And that's the model for our own practice of kindness. I was doing some uh, uh, training yesterday online for coaching Zane's soccer team. And they talked about kindness. And they said that kindness is simply doing uh, unto others what you would have them do to you. And I thought, oh, that's the golden rule. But actually, as nice as that sounds, that's not kindness. It's still good to do that. But kindness is actually giving to others what Christ has given to us. Not giving people what they deserve. Not trying to work with people and, and, and be nice to people for what they do back to us. It's sacrificing yourself to benefit others. And so in one way, kindness is a spiritual weapon that instead of lashing out at others, we have an opportunity to then minister to them with kindness. Let me give you one kind of scenario. If you have any extended family members or coworkers that are passive-aggressive, it's very frustrating, isn't it? Like, how do you deal with someone who's kind of always giving you a dig? Well, instead of responding back with a witty barb or blowing up at them or just avoiding them like the plague, attack them with kindness. Jesus moved toward you and I, didn't he, when we were his enemies. So how can we move toward other people with kindness? Perhaps that simply is letting that passive-aggressive comment go. Perhaps it's restraining your tongue to get from riled up and you participating in the sin. Maybe it's shifting the conversation to talk about things that are not divisive or, or ugly. But ultimately, kindness means for you and that person, you need to know enough about their life that you can be beneficial to them, that you can be useful to them. And not simply useful like you're their punching bag. How can I truly be useful to this other person? That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? How in the world do we get to that, to, to leap over that bar? Well, really, it, it requires the third quality of humility. Because if we're going to give ourselves for the benefit, for the service of others, we have to consider that other people are more important than ourselves, which is what Philippians 2, 1 through 4 talks about. Esteem others as better than yourself. Humility is recognizing our true position before God, thinking of ourselves 
as lowly. In fact, some have even said humility is not just thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. Ken Collier, the former president of the Wilds, defines humility as the lowering of self to find that God is all, self is nothing, and others are more important. The lowering of self to find that God is all, self is nothing, others are more important. Now, in in the text, this word humility in verse 12 was used in Jesus' day of slaves. It was the mentality of a slave. It meant that someone was of no significance. They were unimportant to society at large. They were frankly just property. Non-Christians use this word only in a demeaning way. And here we have another evidence of how the gospel transforms all of life. Because the thing that the world despises, Jesus became and elevated to a place of a virtue. The New Testament uses this word only in a positive way. So instead of exalting power and prestige, we value lowliness and servanthood. Why? Because we're a bunch of carpets and stomping mats that people can wipe their feet off on? No, because our Savior was humble. There are so many verses about the humility of Jesus that, that it's hard to pick one. I've referenced Philippians 2 several times. Pastor Addison preached on it last week. So we'll go with, with John chapter 13. This may be the best live action example of Jesus' humility. It's the night that he's betrayed. It's the day before he dies on the cross to atone for the sins of the world. He's got a couple things on his mind. And the disciples are bickering still about who's the greatest. And so they come into the upper room to observe the Passover meal. And, and no one wants to like take that, that servant role because it's a demeaning thing. No one wants to stoop so low that the rest of the disciples would say, Thaddeus, he's out. He's doing the servant thing. He's not the best of us. No one wants to be that guy. So they all walk in and no one washes their feet. Kind of all waiting for each other to do it. And Jesus knows what's going on. And he doesn't ignore it. In the midst of all that's going to take place, he gets up from supper, lays his towel aside, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. He didn't cut any corners. He picked up a towel and he picked up a wash basin and I could imagine how silent and how much tension there was in that room when they realized, oh, Jesus is doing it. You can feel the awkwardness with what Peter says because Jesus gets to Peter and he, Peter was a guy that I really appreciate because he just, he didn't know quite what to say, but he had to say something always. And Jesus gets to him and and maybe it's silent up till this point. Maybe Peter's third or fourth in line and and Peter's like, well, Lord, you don't, you don't need to wash my feet. You don't kind of like trying to save him the embarrassment maybe. And Jesus says, well, if I don't, you know, wash your feet, then this isn't good. And Peter goes off the deep on the other, well, they wash my whole body. And Jesus says, you don't need to do that. And at the end of all this, Jesus sits back down and all eyes are just riveted on him because they're all feeling ashamed and they all knew that Jesus did what they ought to have done. And he takes the position of the rabbi, he sits down and he teaches and he says this, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, 
so also you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. It's convicting. As you think about how to meet the needs of other people, first, you can, in a little more lighthearted way, you can be thankful that we don't have to literally wash each other's feet anymore in our culture. That's kind of a good thing. But let me ask you this. Who do you think is the least important person in the room today? It's an odd question, isn't it? Who, who's the least important person? Well, it couldn't be me. You're thinking, okay, well, who else is here today? Uh, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that humble people would say, I'm the least important person here today. A humble person answers that question with me. Humble people, you see, go out of their way to encourage others. They don't wait for people to come up to them and talk. They, they don't wait for people to notice them. They go out of their way to seek others. Humble people are good listeners, honestly interested in what the other person is saying and not just like, okay, I'm clocking my time with this person. Great, now it's my turn. Humble people don't mind giving other people credit because they see others as better than themselves anyway. It doesn't hurt their ego not to be praised because they're just, ungrateful, they're just grateful servants of the Lord to begin with. They're overjoyed when another person has the spotlight. Humble people are teachable. They're open to receiving correction and instruction. Even if the correction is a little bit harsh or not done in the right way, they don't dismiss it. Humble people trust the character of God. Humble people keep the focus on Jesus. They make Christ their treasure and don't change their eyes from him. Humble people respond with submission to God's authority and do their best to graciously submit to other authorities in their life. Humble people practice repentance as a way of life. They refuse to make a big deal about the sins of other people because they know that they're just as much, if not a greater sinner than the next person. They're restrained in criticism and liberal with praise. We could go on and on. The Lord Jesus considered himself to be the least important person. And Philippians 2 says that we as his followers ought to let this mind, the mind of Christ, be in you. Humble people, then, are not just kind people. They're also meek people. They're meek. The fourth item is meekness, often translated gentleness. It's, it's frequently found in the virtue lists of the New Testament, like the fruit of the Spirit, for instance. And this term is, is tricky to understand, so I want to try to illustrate it here in a moment. Meekness includes a gentleness of attitude and behavior in contrast to harshness in dealing with other people. But meekness isn't soft or mushy or flabby either. It has courage and strength and a backbone of steel under the Spirit's control. And this is not a perfect illustration, but it'll kind of get the ball down the road. The word chivalry was used in medieval times as a knight's code of conduct. Here were armed men trained in warfare with the, modern, the, the uh, medieval equivalent of tanks, which was horses, and instead of becoming this brute force of raiders, there was developed this kind of code of conduct. Now, historians debate how much they followed this code of conduct, but in theory, the chivalry code was such that the ideal knight would have a combination of qualities like courage, honor, courtesy, justice, and a readiness to help the weak. 
You see, the knight was using his power and strength to defend those who could not defend themselves. That's meekness. But meekness doesn't just refer to physical strength. Uh, I've heard the definition of meekness is strength under control. And, and if for some reason in my mind, that always meant like physical power. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't bench press that much. How, how am I supposed to be meek? Well, that's the wrong idea. Meekness leverages any strength of yours, any giftedness that you have, to minister to another person's weaknesses in a gentle way. That's meekness. So what strengths could this be? Well, it could be a financial strength to help those who don't have as much or to teach people how to use their money. It could be an outgoing personality that that recognizes that there's some people that are lonely or displaced and you can draw them in and make them feel welcomed. It could be an area you have expertise in to just go and help someone who doesn't. Wherever your strengths lie, that is where you need to demonstrate meekness. But here's the catch. Here's what makes it so, so hard. Is that because we are sinners, the things that we are best at, we are most impatient with others in. What we are really good at, we tend to be most frustrated when other people aren't there. When someone isn't as good as me in an area, meekness prevents me from becoming arrogant or harsh. A couple years ago, I, I actually spent a couple of months studying meekness for my own spiritual growth. And I've got, you know, 15 pages or something like that that I came up with as I studied the Bible. But the most significant lesson I learned is this. Meekness encompasses everything about Jesus, his attitude and his disposition, his lifestyle, his leadership, and his ministry, his relationships with other people. Meekness is, is, his, is, is the description of Jesus. Well, how can this be? If you took Jesus and dissected his spiritual heart, what would flow out of it? Well, he actually told us. This verse is probably familiar to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As author Dane Ortland points out, this is the only time in the Bible Jesus says, this is my heart. He self-described for us what he's like, and he said that what he's like at his deepest part of him is meekness, gentleness, and lowliness. Meekness. It's the virtue that our Savior embodies perfectly, the one that we struggle to do. It's what draws us to Jesus, though. He is gentle and welcoming. So how can we grow in meekness? We have to identify the areas that we're gifted in, and then we have to start thinking and considering how to surrender those strengths to the Spirit of God, how we can leverage these strengths to uplift other people, because meekness is located at the intersection of your strengths and other people's needs, and meekness is always done with gentleness and grace. And that leads, finally, into patience. The final piece of Christ-like character is patience. This word is defined this way, to be emotionally calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaint or irritation. 
So what this means is that you cannot show patience or exhibit patience unless you are provoked and frustrated. Patience, therefore, is the ability to show restraint and calmness when frustrated or provoked. And just with that definition, I can feel many of us in the room cringing. Because that's not easy, is it? To show restraint and calmness when frustrated or provoked. And the Lord Jesus, again, is the perfect model for patience. Just consider how patient he was with those disciples. Right? These were men that walked with him for three, different, for three whole years and they still were arguing about who's the greatest. They still didn't know who exactly he was. They still didn't believe that he was going to rise from the dead. They had doubts and failures and misfortunes. And Jesus doesn't cut them off. He doesn't blow up at them. He doesn't have a curse-out moment in the locker room as a lot of coaches would do. He constantly, patiently brings them along. Again, that's... That's really convicting. Because at the slightest provocation, we're ready to defend ourselves. We're ready to jump down someone else's throat. You're not going to treat me that way. And yet our Savior went to the cross. You will be provoked this week. There will be moments of frustration if you're like, oh, that's a good point. Hopefully you realize that. And so you can adjust to it moving forward. You will be provoked. There will be something in life that does not work out exactly how you want it. So how do you respond? Dress yourself with patience. Ask the Lord to give you grace to endure the provocation. And remember, the heart of the issue is that biblical patience remembers that God's in control. He is still on the throne. You can wait if he gives you strength. You can respond the way Christ did if the Spirit of God is controlling you. You can do it. This is the wardrobe of Christ-like character. Now I'm going to briefly mention verses 13 and 14. We'll come back to them next week. And this is intentional, okay? The wardrobe of Christ-like character is then modeled. As As we live out this character, what does it look like? It actually looks like forgiveness. Grammatically, verse 13 is a little different than verse 12, which shows us that it's a shift in idea. These two qualities of being of bearing with one another and forgiving one another are how we show the Christ-like character that we've put on. And what's interesting is, is when we're commanded to put on forgiveness, that means that Paul is assuming that there will be relational conflict, that there will be challenges to our unity. And so, In God's kindness, he's been helpful to us by showing us how we handle that. It's through the avenue of forgiveness that we'll talk more about next week. And the fabric or the material that all these character qualities are made out of is really love. Verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Above all these things means that Paul is elevating love above everything else he's just talked about. He does this at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. He says the greatest of these is love. And love is the greatest part of Christ-like character because it's the bond of perfection. That word bond was used of the fasteners that held ships together. It was also used back in Colossians 2.19 of the ligaments that hold a physical body together. It's, we could say, relationship glue. It's the material that all these other qualities are built out of. 
And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said that the two great commandments are to love God with all of our heart and love others as ourselves. And so if we're struggling to add any of these qualities to our lives, you have to know that at the root of the issue is a love problem. That if you're not demonstrating meekness or you're, you're more angry than you are patient, it's because you don't love God or love others the right way. You actually love yourself too much. And that, that steps on your toes. It steps on my toes. And so the first step to putting on Christ-like character is to put off the ungodly things and then to renew your mind, to repent of that sin of self-love and ask the Spirit of God to grow you and change you and then to start dressing yourself in the, the character of Jesus. You know, my boys, the three of them like matching me. In fact, this morning, one of them said, do, you, do I have a shirt like yours that I can, I can match? Are you wearing a tie today? I said, no. He said, oh, okay. Yesterday, another one said, can you wear this same t-shirt as me? I, I think it's great. You know, we'll match on occasion. It's kind of fun. They're so eager to dress like their dad. Are we that eager to dress like our Savior? Do we have that same childlike faith and childlike zeal to just resemble the person who's done so much for us? Christians are to be clothed with Christ-likeness. And so as you go from here today, here's my challenge to you. We've talked about a lot of different things. I would encourage you to select one quality to prayerfully ask God to grow you in. But I warn you, if you ask the Lord to grow you in it, he's going to do that. And he's going to do it in a way that you don't necessarily want. Because it, like, if you pray for patience, he's not just going to dump patience on you. He's going to send you things that make you irritated. It's just the way it's going to be. So if you're courageous enough to follow Christ, ask him to help you grow in one of these areas. Make this a matter of prayer. Share it with your small group that you're living in community with. Read a book on this topic. Memorize several verses of scripture that deal with it. Give it to the Lord over and over again and then pursue it. And don't be discouraged when you mess up in it because it's gonna happen. As we grow and go week after week, we not only put off sinful things, but we put on Christ-like things. And so let's ask the Lord to give us grace to change in these areas. Father in heaven, there are so many convicting things in a passage like this. We pray that your spirit would move, that we wouldn't be so uncomfortable that we just try to ignore the conviction and walk away, but that, that we would humble ourselves under the, the preaching and teaching of your word, that we would grow by it. You know better than anyone that I need to grow in these ways. So help each one of us that's made a commitment to giving an area like this to you, that we would, that we would see victory in it, that we would walk in it, and clothe ourselves with the same virtue as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.